0: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, we see what can happen when we try to do miracles in our own strength without God's direction. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 19, verse 13. The title of the message is, making an impact.
1: Acts 19, 1 Peter chapter 3, and Psalm 44. Well, the theme of Acts, of course, is Jesus is still working, and he's still working, isn't he? He's still working. And we've seen in Acts chapter 19 that God poured out his spirit upon the church at Ephesus and we saw the amazing work that God did for two years there in Ephesus as a result of that. And the tendency is to think, that's it, you know, we've arrived, they've got it, that's what it's all about. But a spirit-empowered life is just one part of the equation. The work of God's spirit is to bring us to a place of absolute surrender that will impact not just us but the world around us and so in the rest of this chapter as we move on we're going to see the amazing impact that their surrendered lives the spirit-filled lives that they had had on ephesus and this is how god wants to impact our city as well so we're going to pick it up here in verse 13 of chapter 19 of acts and move on so acts 19 verse 13 Now, into this situation where God is doing these amazing miracles, unique miracles, and God has poured out his spirit and great discipleship is happening here. Verse 13, we find that some come into Ephesus now to minister without the spirit. It says, then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, we adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul Preaches. Now, these vagabond exorcists, they were traveling gypsies, so to speak. They would travel around and they had this exorcism business, okay? They actually claimed to have special training passed down from Solomon and they would use potions or charms or incantations to get rid of the demons. And so, for a hefty fee, of course, you could have your demons removed. And Jesus actually referenced them in, in Matthew twelve, twenty-seven, because remember they said he casts out demons by the prince of demons, right? And and Jesus said, Well, if I do that, then by what power do your sons cast them out? So he referenced these guys in Matthew twelve, twenty-seven. Well, as word was spreading of all the amazing things God was doing, they thought that they would add the name of Jesus to their repertoire. It says that they took upon them, they began to attempt to call over them which had these evil spirits now the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, and this is what they'd say, we abjure you or we command you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. No doubt having heard the stories of how God had used Paul to genuinely set people free from demonic bondage, they added Paul and Jesus' authority to their incantations. And this became a common practice in the area until something a little crazy happens in Ephesus. Verse 14. And there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. So we find this guy Siva, or Siva, he was a high-ranking priest, a Levite, visiting Ephesus with his exorcism business. And so there was one of these guys, and he did so. He was starting to use Paul and Jesus' name. But there was one problem he encountered now in Ephesus. He actually encountered a real demon. (laughs) Instead of just huckstering and doing his thing. And so in verse 15, it says, they did this, and the real demon answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? (laughs) The scariest night ever. (laughs) It's never a good thing when the demon answers you instead of the person, not a good thing. And so the spirit answers and says, Jesus, I know him. And Paul, I'm familiar with. But, and literally in the Greek, it means, but you? Who are you? Who are you? Jesus said, all power and authority is given unto me, and he is with us in the world. We never have anything to fear from the forces of darkness. But a man apart from Christ surely does. Surely does. Messing around with the occult is one of the most dangerous things an unbeliever can do because they are severely outmatched. And verse 16, so the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Whew. I mean the dude this is how fierce it was. He pounding on them, ripping their clothes off, and they're just running out and they're not naked, literally. The idea is they're in their in their civvies. An event like that, of course, you see a bunch of guys running around in their underwear, you know, and they're you know, they thought, isn't that the traveling exorcist gypsy guys? Is that a new show? I mean, is that you know and, and, and that would immediately draw attention and the news would spread. And sure enough, it did. Verse 17. And this was known to all the Jews and the Greeks that were also living at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. When this happened, a great reverence for God came upon those people all throughout the city. There's the mocking of God that people do. There's making merchandise of God's people that false prophets do. But then there comes those times when God moves in reality and there's a sense of reverence. You know, when 9-11 happened, I distinctly remember the attitude of so many people. Our church was full that day. It was full that, that next Sunday. It was full. People had lots of questions. Why? What happened? How did this happen? Why did God allow it to happen? Is there a God? I want to find out about God. I need to know about God because it was very rare for you to interact with someone who didn't at least know someone who was touched by that horrible, tragic event. There are things in life that occur that cause us to kind of wake up a little bit and to ask the question of, okay, I've been kind of going through life and kind of doing my own thing and and whatever, and this doesn't fit into that plan. This doesn't fit with that at all. Many of us watched on live TV as those buildings came down and it didn't fit into anything about our regular, selfish, self-centered day. That whole event just ran counter to me living my life and doing my thing. And this is kind of one of those things in the city where they just kind of looked around and you thought, okay, there's a real God out there and what I just saw does not fit into the way I've decided to live my life. It's very similar when Ananias and Sapphira died for lying to God. Did you imagine what would happen in our city if something like that happened? We had offering time, and then somebody just keeled over? Or if in some church somewhere, you know, you had someone who was, you know, having an affair, but they were in the pulpit, and they just keeled over? Somebody said, you're having an affair, and the Lord's going to take you. Boom, and they go down. I imagine it would be in the news, and I imagine it would cause some people to think. There was a line, a clear line drawn Here between the fraudulent and the real, the truth and the lie. And these events tend to wake people up who are wayward, knowing they have no business being where they are in their backslidden state. Verse 18. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. These are the ones who had already believed. These were believers now. He said, wait a second. I thought, I thought God's doing awesome things and he's poured out his spirit in Ephesus and, 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 Why are the believers coming and confessing and and showing their deeds? In fact, the word came means they kept on coming. We're not sure where they came or at what time they did this or how it started, but it was a spontaneous move here amongst the Christians as God's spirit brought conviction. They saw that there was the fraudulent and that God dealt with the fraudulent and looked at things in their lives and they knew that there was hypocrisy. They knew that there was sin that hadn't been dealt with. And so they came and they confessed, it says, and they showed their deeds. The confessing and showing is a Greek idiom that means to openly declare one's deeds from top to bottom. In other words, nothing kept secret, no more hiding, no more compromise. These believers came forward and they began to confess their sin. They began to make, openly declare all the things that were going on in their life that had no business being in their life. These believers laid it all out there. I remember if you've never read a a good biography, Keith Green, who's a controversial individual. There were times they're saying, you know, you read about it and you're like, okay, that was a little odd. But one of the things that was fascinating about him is he felt like part of what happened in the church is that we'd kind of put this cocoon, this spiritual cocoon around each of us. And we, we kind of came to church, we just did our thing and, and we left. And, and so when he would have his worship concerts, or they'd invite him in to come share. He would have these times of just open confession. He'd open up the microphone and people could come up and confess whatever sin they were, they were going through. And they just wanted to get it out in the open. And, and God in many of these venues would pour out his spirit and, and there would be great revival that would occur. And here we see something very similar to that where these believers lay it all out there and it results in a forsaking of their wicked deeds. Verse 19, and many of them also which used curious arts or they were basically witchcraft is what they were involved in. It says they brought their books together and they burned them before all men and they counted the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Now, this is more likely Gentile believers who had many superstitious practices that went with their idolatry. And after some of these Gentile believers, after they had given their lives to Christ, they had held on to these things afterwards. They hadn't let go of them yet. And so they had a lot of these superstitious things in their homes, a lot of these superstitious practices that they still did. And so they brought this out into the light. And it says they brought those things, those books, and they burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. That's the equivalent of $10,000 of materials. It's a lot of books. <laughs> now, one thing I want you to notice, they didn't go running around town demanding that the unbelievers burn their books. They didn't go running around town and breaking into libraries and burning books. Nor did Paul tell them to do so. It was spontaneous from the Christians who were doing things that they knew they shouldn't which brings it now 2,000 years later down to us. What secret things in our lives need to be brought into the open and burned? I don't need to give you any suggestions because if you have anything like that in your life, the spirit of God is putting his finger on it right now. He's putting his finger on it right now and saying, this needs to go. This needs to stop. You know, when I was a young believer, I had a lot of issues I came from an occult background. All my friends were involved in witchcraft. And so you know, I didn't get deeply involved into it in the same way that they did, but that was my background. And um, when I got saved, you know, I was like these guys. You know, I still kind of did all that stuff and you know, it was still kind of a part of my life, but I love Jesus. And, and I was very ineffective in my witness. I was very ineffective in my Christian walk. I, I didn't find a lot of freedom in my walk with the Lord. I struggled a lot. Every Sunday was kind of like one of those Sundays where you, you come dragging in. You're like, "All right, Pastor, you know, fill it in again," because I, I ran out about Wednesday, you know, and and, uh, and, and you know, just kind of, you're just trying to trying to hang on. And, and there were times in my life that I almost wished, I dreaded, because I was afraid. I was afraid someone was going to get up and say, and "There's someone in sin here," and they'll point to me. And you know, but there was also a part of me that I almost hoped they did, so I could just get it all out there, and they would know. and and it'd be out there for everyone to see so they could, I could get it done with finally. If you have anything the Spirit of God is putting his finger on right now, you have to bring it out into the open. You gotta get rid of it. But I'll be embarrassed, you might say. These guys had one of the most amazing pastors to ever live in Paul, but they still had these secret sins. There's a lie that the enemy shows to us. He says to you, see, you know, you don't understand. You, you shouldn't be doing this at all. I mean, you're a Christian now. You know better. You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be living this way. So, so don't let anybody know because nobody else is doing that. And nobody else struggles like this because you're just kind of one of those kind of sort of Christians. And God really doesn't have a plan for you and God really can't use you. And so this is just how you are and who you are and what you'll be forever. If anyone had reason to be embarrassed, it was these guys. Who's your pastor? Paul the apostle. Oh, what was your church struggling with? What do you preach about a lot? Well, we still kind of like to hang out with witches and demons, all that kind of stuff. That's nothing much, you know? But the beautiful thing is none of that stopped them. Obedience from the heart never needs convenience to enable its undertaking. Obedience from the heart never needs convenience to enable its undertaking. Do the right thing. Because you know what? That's how we're going to change the world. That's how we'll change our city. Look at the result, verse 20. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Just as that demon overcame these unbelievers that were trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus and Paul without knowing Jesus, the word of God overcame and conquered. I want to see the word of God prevail in our city. Don't you? God help us. It starts here. Revival starts here. And impact starts here in our hearts as we say, God, no more secrets, no more things hidden in the dark. I wanna come out and I wanna make it known and clear. Verse 21 After these things were ended, this awesome work of God and the word of God is spreading and prevailing in this area. It says that Paul purposed in the spirit or in his attitude, in his own mind. He had planned in his own mind that when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, then he would go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul had a plan. He was not going to stay in Ephesus much longer. He was going to go visit the churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, then go back to Jerusalem, and then from there make his way to Rome. And so, verse 22, he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timothy and Rastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. Now, Rastus, this is our first mention of him here in the book of Acts. He was one of the treasurers at Corinth. When he got saved, he became one of Paul's assistants alongside Timothy. And his name appears only three times in the Bible, but all of those three times we see him serving right alongside Paul. And you know, some wonderful brothers and sisters are called to do something different than what you and I are doing, but then God brings some who are called to labor side by side with us. And aren't you thankful for the people that God brings alongside you in life? I'm always sad when God takes someone away, when he sends them somewhere else, and I think, well, I need them here. I need them in my life. But sometimes God does send someone somewhere else, but I'm so grateful and thankful for the people God brings alongside in my life. Paul, his plan was to stay here for a short time in Ephesus, and he explains why he stayed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, we believe he wrote that book from Ephesus at this time. And so it says there in verses 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians 16, But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries." Through this revival in the church, God had opened a massive door to minister in Ephesus. But as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, there were adversaries. Verse 23. Now at that same time, there arose no small stir about that way. In other words, King James is always very polite. So that means there was a massive commotion or disturbance about the way. Now that was the early name for Christianity. And Luke is about to describe to us what this commotion was about. Verse 24. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsman, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, sirs you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worships. It's always a bad thing when your god can get voted out, when no longer has the ability to protect himself or herself. The psalmist says that these gods, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have hands, but they can't help. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have feet, but they have to be carried around in a cart. And then it says, they that worship them are like unto them. That's what happens when you worship an idol. You become desensitized. You become less than what God intended you to be. Well, these guys, they, they don't get it. This Demetrius, he's a trade guild leader of high-end shrine dealers. Now, these were small models of the temple. They'd put a little statue of Diana inside, and people would set it up in their home, or they'd wear it as an amulet. Now, that's some seriously big bling, I guess. But poor worshipers would buy terracotta shrines, but the wealthy would buy silver ones. So these guys are dealing with the wealthy. These are the moneymakers. And sales were always highest during the great festival to Diana. In the month of May. Now what's interesting about that is Paul told us in 1 Corinthians sixteen eight, that his plan was to stay through at Ephesus through the feast of Pentecost. Pentecost would be at the end of May, at the same time as the festival. So it is likely the adversaries that Paul anticipates are from this guild. With sales dropping due to all the people getting saved and giving their lives to the Lord, they'll want to make sure that this is still a big payday. And so he says, he calls all these guys together and he says, guys, this is how we get our money. This is where our income is. And you have seen incurred, not just at Ephesus, but this guy, Paul, he's persuaded people to turn away from our business, to turn away, saying that they are not gods, those which are made with hands. Verse 27, so that not only our craft is in danger to be set at naught or to fall into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised or reckoned as nothing, reckoned as nothing. And her magnificence should be destroyed, literally dethroned, dethroned, I long for the day when every false god will be dethroned and when the light of the Lord will reign. Now, lest we minimize the reality of the impact of the goddess Diana, uh, Pausanias was a Greek traveler and geographer. In one of his numerous writings, he mentions that Diana of Ephesus was worshipped more than any other deity in the world. And can you imagine anything more awesome than seeing that threatened by the message of God's love through Christ What's most worshiped in our culture? A lot of things. And what's the main key issue in politics right now? It all comes down to money now, right? It's all about money. We all vote with our wallet. Who's gonna keep it full? Or who's gonna keep the government from taking money out of my wallet? It is heartbreaking to see Christians very often rally behind individuals solely for the purpose of their wallet. We will support And we will throw our support and our encouragement behind individuals who are immoral people, who are not good husbands, who are not good fathers, who don't manage their own money well, who don't live moral lives, but because we just want less government. I made a commitment to the Lord in my heart about 12 years ago. And I would no longer cast my vote for someone I didn't want my kids to grow up and be like. I would no longer do so. We say, Willie, you're just part of the problem. You're not voting for someone else is a vote for the person that's even worse. Listen, the nation that forsakes righteousness, God will judge. It doesn't say that God will be with the nation that chooses the lesser evil. If we have any hope of doing that which is correct, we need to stand for what is true and what is right. Because all too often we are alienating an entire half of our nation with the gospel of Jesus Christ because we support those who are just as wicked as the other guys. I know that's not popular. I know that's not what some of you probably want to hear. But until we get back to what we're really supposed to be promoting, which is Christ and him crucified, we're not going to make an impact. We cannot hitch our wagon to political parties that have long since left the gospel. Our wagon needs to be hitched with our Savior. A true revival happens. It makes this kind of an impact on a city. We're not going to change things through the polls. We're going to change things through the gospel. We're going to change things through our own hearts being revived as we come to Him. And the people around us are going, you know what? People aren't coming to the bars anymore. People aren't coming to the strip clubs anymore. People aren't living and, and, and investing in the human traffic anymore because you know what? They're not doing those things anymore. Don't we want to have that kind of an impact on our city? We can't lose hope. We can't just decide to say, well, let's just, just hang on. That is the calling of the tribulation saints where it says, blessed is he who dies in the Lord until this is over. And if you hang on, praise the Lord, hang on. Our job is not to hang on. Our job is to win. Our job is to plow a field, to lay the seed and to see God move. We have a task in front of us. And I understand I get discouraged I see it and I get so discouraged. you just want to be like, why even bother? But our call is not to just hang on. Our call is to win, to hold fast and to hold forth and to call a wayward generation back to a loving Savior who has not given up on them, who shed his blood for them, every drop
0: that they might be redeemed.